In partnership with 2SER's 107.3, the Walkleys present the latest episode of Walkley Talks. Fourth Estate is a weekly program about the media, featuring some of Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Yes, g'day and welcome to Fourth Estate here uh, on the Community Radio Network and uh, 2SER in Sydney. James Bourne in the chair this week. Thanks so much for your company. Of course, Fourth State, your weekly roundup of all things media. And joining me, giving me some company here in the studio tonight, we have Joe Toby, the Sydney Morning Herald's Saturday Deputy Editor. Joe, welcome. And uh, also with me, we have um, uh, Helen Davidson, reporter at The Guardian. Helen, welcome. Hi, thanks. Um, now, joining us on the line uh, from uh, Canberra is ABC's political correspondent, Lyndall Curtis. Lyndall, thanks for your time. Thank you. And also from The Australian is uh, reporter Rachel Baxendale joining us via Skype. Rachel, g'day. G'day, how are you going? Well, thanks. Um, now, look, we'll get cracking this week uh, on the appointment of Janet Albrechtson, the Conservative columnist, and Neil Brown, who have been appointed to the nomination panel for the ABC and SBS boards uh, by the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. Um, they announced it last week, um, and both of these figures... Vocal critics, interestingly, of the ABC. Um, now, Stephen Conroy said that uh, it's time to restore the independence um, of, of these boards, a new appointment process to ensure that all future appointments to SBS and ABC boards are conducted in a manner that fosters independence, transparency, accountability and public confidence back in 2008 when he set up the appointments here. Um, look, we might come to you first, Lyndall Curtis in Canberra. Um, the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet would have known these appointments would look like government interference in the direction of the public broadcasters, particularly in the context of um, recent funding cuts, albeit quite small cuts. Um, Do you think it signals in some way the intention of the Prime Minister's office uh, about their intentions towards the ABC and SBS in the coming years? Well, you would think it would, although although, uh, we've been told this was a hands-off process, but um, but uh, it may well be that the the head of PM and C kind of uh, you know took a look at the landscape. Public servants, while while they're impartial, they're also mindful of the uh, character of the government. But certainly, um, you know, there was a brief period in the life of the ABC board when there was a, an attempt for a merits-based selection process, one that what was hands-off in terms of politics, but you also have to put into the fact there's 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 a nomination panel to to nominate people for the board. So I think it, it's very hard in these appointments to get away from any sort of uh, political nature of of of, uh, of appointments to anything. But these these are people who will nominate a shortlist for the board. They aren't the board themselves. So it's one step removed from that. Uh, Janet Albrechtson was a member of the ABC board, so she has had some experience on the ABC board, and Neil Brown hasn't. But then it's up to the Minister for Communications to to look at the shortlist that uh, that they're presented with when it comes to ABC board appointments. So in practice, this might not have the sort of overwhelming effect that people are ascribing to it? No, it, it might not. But you also have to look at what governments have done in the past. Governments of both colours have made political appointments to the ABC board over the years. It was only a, a brief period of time where we had this, uh, this kind of independent process. So both 
Labor, the Labor Party and the Coalition have made political appointments. Uh, John Howard wasn't backward in making political appointments. One of those was Janet Albrechtson to the board. But you'd have to say what really um, has an effect on the ABC is the funding. It's the money. And, and governments can can uh, decide the fate of the ABC, how much it can do or how little, based on the money that I think has a bigger effect on the ABC mm. than, than the board, which, which mm. in the end, uh, the board is an oversight process. The board doesn't have day-to-day uh, management of the corporation. So I guess uh, to our studio guests, uh, we'll start with Joe. The Friends of the ABC describe these appointments of a declaration of, or a declaration of war on the ABC's independence. Are they obviously taking it too far, do you think? Yeah, I think a declaration of war is probably overstating things a little bit. I mean, to some extent, all governments um, have always had an adversarial relationship with the ABC. Um, As Lyndall said, there have been political appointments before. John Howard uh, appointed Janet Albrechtson, Keith Winshuttle and others. Um, Paul Keating appointed a former Labor Premier in um, John Bannon, I think, to the aboard. So, and you know, the ABC's been a thorn in the side of governments for, for decades, so... The idea of kind of declaring war on the ABC is not is not new. I do think there is some sort of symbolic gesture in these appointments. I think if you had one um, sort of strident right-wing critic of the ABC appointed to this nomination panel, you could sort of pass it off as a coincidence. Two out of two seems mm. um, a bit too much of a coincidence. Um, so I think there is some, whether it's sort of a, a nod to their right-wing base to say, yep, we're in charge, um, whether it's an attempt to sort of influence who gets um, put on the board eventually, I'm not sure. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think war is perhaps going a little far, but I do think there is obviously kind of a, a method uh, at work yeah. here. I mean, there, there is a panel of four. Do we think, Helen, that having two Conservatives on a panel of four is a problem or does that sort of provide some balance to it potentially? Well, look, it's not necessarily a problem, particularly if, you know, the other two members of the panel are outwardly progressive. Um, You know, as Linda was saying before, it is a step back from actually appointing people to the board. And there is always this chance of that, you know, these decisions are maybe not necessarily you know, um, declaring war on the ABC. Mm. But, I mean, there is always this chance that maybe it's a bit of a, a kick at Kevin Rudd as well because he set up this um, he set up this panel to begin with, um, you know, specifically to avoid, uh, what, what did he call it, uh, frontier cultural warriors. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, this can very much look like, well, you know, you didn't want your frontier cultural war- yeah, warriors, but you didn't really do it very well, <laughs> did you? Yeah. Mm. Um, now, also, Malcolm Turnbull questioned whether these appointments would actually produce changes in the day-to-day running of these public broadcasters. Um, do you think he's got a point there, Lindell, or do you think he's kind of missed the point? Um, well, I think, like I said, the, the board um, the board appointments um, in the end don't have any control over the day-to-day operations of, of the ABC. The board does appoint to see the managing director, so in that way can influence it. But the board doesn't get down into the kind of editorial weeds decisions. It does have a look at whether there have been um, whether there are breaches of the ABC's editorial policies those those notifications if there have been tend to go up to the board so they're alerted to it um, but in terms of the day-to-day running um, the board aren't necessarily the main players I think as I said before I think you know the the bigger determinant of what happens to the ABC is is the funding and as you said the, the ABC had a relatively small cut in the budget 
but there, there is more to come. There's been an efficiency review to being con that's been conducted. We haven't seen it. It's gone to uh, both uh, both the ABC and SBS for comment, but that's likely to result in in further funding cuts. Mm. Now, the minister says that that can be kept away from programming. It's all back office and admin stuff, but that that will be a question to be determined by by both the organisations. I think the the money actually has a bigger a bigger influence on on how the ABC operates and whether it can do what it wants to do. But but how much um, of that money and, and the way it is actually purposed or repurposed comes down to the people on the board making those decisions? Well, I think maybe some of it does. I mean, I've, mm. I've uh, never never been able to sit you know on the ABC board. Oh, that's a shame. I'm sure it's riveting. For, probably fortunate for me because <laughs> you know meetings aren't my strong point. Um, but it may well be that the board can can influence some of that. But in the end, those sorts of decisions come down to the managing director and his leadership team. Um, also, back to you, Joe. How do we actually measure how good a job the panel that appoints the board of the public broadcaster is doing? Is there is there a measure of success for them, or does it depend basically on the government who's appointed them, or you know what what the public thinks of the product that it's getting from? the broadcaster itself. How do we measure that? Well, it's very tricky, and I, I went back and had a look at the Act today in preparation mm. for this to try and see if there were any sort of criteria set up to protect the independence of the nomination panel, which, of course, was set up by the Rudd, uh, first Rudd government to protect the independence of the board. Mm. Um, and while they've created this sort of arm's-length uh, nomination panel for the board appointments there's nothing to sort of necessarily to protect the independence of the nomination panel so which is why we've ended up in this position where it's the nomination panel that seems to be being politicized and not necessarily the board appointments um, themselves there don't really seem to be any criteria in the act by which you would judge the nomination panel it seems to be really at the discretion of um, one person the secretary of the prime minister's department um, so, so no. So, I don't know what you do about that. Do you set up an independent nomination panel to nominate for the nomination panel? I don't yeah. know. There's a point perhaps <laughs> where you have to reluctantly accept a degree of politicisation and hope that there are there's enough diversity on that nomination panel and enough good candidates put forward that the communications minister, who ultimately um, makes a decision and takes it to cabinet, will make a good decision. And it's also worth uh, mentioning that there are two other nominations on that panel. You've got David Gonski of Gonski Reforms fame, and you also have uh, ex-diplomat Rick Smith. So um, could we conclude that the nominations are probably balanced as a, a whole, Helen, and it basically comes down to what Malcolm Turnbull thinks of them? <laughs> I think so, and, you know, and that in the end does tend to point to this as being, you know, whether it was delivered or not, sort of an outwardly pub almost a public relations move by mm. making these appointments, because in the end it actually doesn't matter as much as you know, the final outcome of who is nominated to the board and whether Malcolm Turnbull as communications minister goes chooses to go along with that. All right, look, it's a vexed question and I guess we'll wait to see uh, just how it goes and, and who the panel nominate once the panel itself has probably, or properly, been put in place. You're listening to Fourth Estate. And joining me on Fourth Estate this week, we have Lyndall Curtis, the ABC political correspondent who's joining us from Canberra, Joe Toby, the Saturday deputy editor of the City Morning Herald, Helen Davidson, reporter for The Guardian, and Rachel Baxendale, who uh, does join us again, reporter for The Australian, dropped away there, but uh, thanks for joining us again, Rachel. Yes, I am back. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, um, look, we, we'd like to take a look at um, a, a quite a vexed story that's taken place uh, in the last week, um, a, a report of sexual abuse in northern Queensland and the way it was handled by the Courier-Mail. 
Um, I might get Helen Davidson, who's written about this for The Guardian, to basically give us a quick rundown of the events that transpired this week. I know you've yeah, written extensively on it. Could you just take us through? Sure. So it was a report that was actually commissioned by the former Labor government in Queensland um, on the state of um, sexual abuse uh, and various other sort of indicators, including um, STDs, that sort of thing. Um, it came up with some really, really shocking um, information about how widespread and how high level these um, the instances of abuse were. But it also came with a recommendation that the data be kept um, unpublished, not secret, but kept unpublished because we're dealing with communities that are so small that um, by identifying them, you're you're in some cases effectively identifying individuals um, and it can cause stigma and you know further trauma to victims. Um, the parts of the report were leaked and it was covered in a report by... Or parts of it were covered in a report by the Courier-Mail about two weeks ago and then again on the front page of The Australian last weekend. Um, both stories dealt with it in a very different manner, but the author of the report, Stephen's, um, Professor Stephen Smallbone, has actually come out publicly and has gotten you know, incredibly angry, particularly at the Courier-Mail, for, um, you know, for going against that recommendation and publishing the data. So do we know why it was a recommendation and not... Um actually sort of mandated that it was not allowed to be done or is this just the legal situation we're dealing with essentially um look as far as i can as far as i know the you know the authors of the report um is commissioned by the labor government they're in no position to make that kind of demand that it be kept unpublished that is up to the labor government um and for, and sorry subsequently the newman government mm. um who both took that recommendation on board and decided not to publish it but a section of it was leaked um now i, I guess the courier mail's justification for reporting that leak would be public interest, um, but does there need to be, Joe Tavy, some sort of balance between the right to privacy of an individual or the right to fair recourse for an individual and that public interest, I guess? Sure. I mean, journalists every day hopefully balance the right to privacy of the people they're talking about uh, and the public interest in the stories and information that we pursue. I was a little bit... I saw... I read um, the professor's uh, editorial to the Courier-Mail where he complained about the coverage um, and he seemed to be complaining on two fronts. One, on the potential to invade an individual's right to privacy and potentially expose people who were... Uh, interviewed for the report but he also seemed to take issue with the presentation of information not necessarily in the first very straight news report that the Courier-Mail wrote but in a subsequent feature that they did where they pulled out a headline um, which was taken from a quote with an, uh, an Aboriginal woman in one of these communities who referred to it as a human zoo mm. which I think was probably splashed across their front page um, and was coupled with a picture of a child sort of behind a fence so that she sort of looked like she was in a cage and it was that sort of sensationalist treatment that seemed to really send him off. It wasn't necessary, wasn't simply the, the publication of the report on its own. Um, I think the concerns about sensationalism um, are, you know, are probably justified in that instance. I didn't, however, think that there was the concerns about the invasion of an individual's right for privacy seemed so compelling to me. I have to say when I read the report, particularly the Australians' coverage of it, they were painting fairly broad brushstrokes about mm. um, the statistics that were covered in the report, which seemed to me clearly in, a public interest, in the public interest. Statistics about the rate of sexual abuse, of STIs, um, the abuse of young children. Um, these seem like you know, broad statistics which wouldn't identify particular individuals um, and seem like the sort of information that uh, if it comes across a journalist's desk, you'd want to have a pretty strong reason not to publish. Yeah. I mean, if it was about sexual abuse in the Catholic Church or, you know, immigration detention centres, 
Um, if you held that back, people would question your ethics as a journalist as to why you didn't publish it. Um, so why you need to be very careful about any identifying information, the kind of broader statistical information, I think, um, you know, the right, the public's right to know and the public interest in that information uh, is quite strong. Mm. So, Helen, you think they could have actually reported this story properly, that it was just the issue of naming these communities that really brought any of it into question? This was the issue that um, that Professor Smallbone had, um, just that in particularly in identifying the statistics from one community, which was only a population of about 1,300, that that was so small that it could identify people. Um, and, you know, and like Joe was saying, you know, that you do have to have a really compelling reason not to publish that kind of information because it's so important. Um, but there is a difference between, um, you know, publicly identifying victims and causing further trauma mm. um, and supporting, you know, the keeping of uh, the keep sorry, supporting keeping abuse secret, which, you know, is almost never, ever a good thing. And we've got an entire Royal Commission at the moment devoted to doing, you know, exactly op- exactly the opposite. Yep. Um, and I think you can see a really good indication of the different ways you can treat this between the way the Korea Mail did it and the way that the Australian did it. Um, the Australian, who has always prided themselves on being so strong in covering Indigenous affairs um, and went at that story with that treatment and gave really, you know, strong, considered thought into how they were going to do it compared to the Korea Mail's one, particularly the story that Joe mentioned where, you know, with the human zoo quote. Yeah. Well, let's uh, go to Rachel Baxendale from The Australian. <laughs> it's um, a lovely to hear, hear such <laughs> nice things about the publication I work for. How about that? Um, so, look, do you think that there was a conscious effort on The Australian's part to be less uh, reckless or offensive in the words of Stephen Smallbone to, to actually not take that tabloid route by mm. definition? Well, yeah, look, I think there was an attempt to, to cover it carefully. It is it is a very sensitive issue. Um, it is a very difficult thing to cover. Um, I think our, our journalist, Michael McKenna, spoke to a lot of people involved in, in the Cape York communities involved um, but before going to print. And, um, you know, on the one hand, he had Stephen Smallbone um, objecting to, to the report being made public, but on the other hand, he had spoken to, to numerous people um, involved in the communities who, who felt that there was, you know, a compelling reason for for the report to, to not remain a secret, um, including WIC elder Bruce Martin. So, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's a careful balancing. Um, I guess, I, I mean, yeah, I, I you know, on, on Madam... Uh, I guess a, a matter of personal taste. I prefer very much prefer the way we covered it to the way the Courier Mail mm. covered it. But um, um, in in their defence, though, though that, that sort of human zoo line and, and ghetto line was was a direct quote from someone living in the community. So I, you know, I suppose they they chose to highlight that by making it the headline. But it's it's not something they confected. It's it's something someone living there used to describe. Uh, the situation. Yeah, so I mean, look, as, as Joe said, it's probably unrealistic to expect any media to not publish revelations that are that shocking. Does it almost come down to the fact that it's unrealistic to also expect the tabloid media not to deal with it in a way that does move units? Yeah, absolutely. And and if someone living there is 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 saying that and and using those terms, and then on the other hand, you do have these statistics, which in their own right are pretty pretty shocking and sensational. I mean, um, certainly the stat we led with was that um, that a particular community in Queensland has has a rate of sexually transmitted infections fifty times the state average. Um, mm. I mean, that that in itself is is a pretty shocking statistic, and and 
um, yeah, I, I, I think it was reported in the way it needed to be reported. Um, and I don't, don't, don't really. I think there are much worse examples of, of tabloidization than this one. Mm. Uh, Lyndall Curtis, I, I guess just finally on this topic, um, how seriously should media outlets take these requests that reports not be made public in, in these sort of situations? Is it, again, trying to weigh up the balance of the impact on the people and uh, the, the interest of the reading public? Yes, I think it is, but it's it's not necessarily um, just the interest of the reading public whether people are interested in these stories. It's whether whether it is worth bringing these things to light and and having have shining putting some sunshine on them, making them public so they are out there and can be discussed and and solutions can be discussed. As I think Joe mentioned, there's a royal commission going on into this issue, and that is focusing public attention on it it's it's usually better when these things are talked about publicly mm. than if they're hidden but the question is the way you do it and the sensitivity you bring to it and i think all the commentators are quite right i think the australian's treatment of it was was probably better in this instance but i think people would be surprised too at the level of conversations that go on in newsrooms about whether whether these things should be reported, how they should be reported. Most journalists I know and most editors, editorial staff I know, actually treat these things very seriously and have those sorts of conversations all the time. But reports like this that are still, you know, before judiciaries and, and before police, should we be allowing their investigations and, and their sort of um, uh, own own discussions and investigations take their course before the media actually does latch onto these reports or is it fair game to report something once you've got it on the record? Well, I think I think you are mindful of of the kind of stages of the processes that things are at, but but um sometimes, you know, you pick a point in time and make the decision to report it. I think I think the bigger question is how you do it and how you how you treat that subject matter uh, when it comes before you. All right. Uh, we'll move on to our next topic next. For now, you're listening to The Fourth Estate. And uh, you're listening to Fourth Estate. And today, our panel, consisting of four women members of the media, uh, Lyndall Curtis from the ABC, Joe Tovey from the SMH, Helen Davidson from The Guardian, and Rachel Baxendale from The Australian. And uh, just to balance it all out, a man behind the announcer's <laughs> microphone. Um, and on that, um, we'd like to touch on reports out this week about the continuing pay gap um, from men to women in the media. Um, it's it's a vexed question, and it, and it comes to an, an idea um, of this belief that women have less confidence in professional settings than men. This seemed to be the takeout line um, from these reports, um, as women working in newsrooms various across the country. Um, do you think this is some sort of self-fulfilling prophecy of a lack of confidence among women in newsrooms, Joe Tovey, or is it a false narrative? Well, look, I do think there is some element of truth in the um, in discussions about a sort of a confidence gap between men and women. Um, I was discussing this with a few female editors at work this afternoon, and we were talking about the relatively low number of women who write letters um, into the Herald letters page and women who submit um, op-eds. Um, and it's about uh, four to one men to women 
submitting there, which is really shocking. And, and they put the, that down in, you know, in some part to women being less assertive with their opinions, less willing to put them forward. Um, I know in the newsroom that a lot of the young women I speak to say that they're not, they don't feel confident asking for a pay rise or they're not quite sure how to do that and um, perhaps talk themselves down in ways that some of their male colleagues perhaps don't. Um, but at the same time, I get a bit worried about these sort of discussions about how women need to have just have more confidence and just lean in and that'll solve the gender pay gap. I mean, it sort of puts the onus on women saying, well, the reason you're not being paid as much is because you're not asking for it. There are a lot of women who do great work and frankly, they shouldn't have to ask for it. What's wrong with bosses that they don't just recognise the good work um, that's going on in their newsroom? What's What sort of structural issues um, are holding women back in the workplace? You know, are workplaces family friendly? Do they prize certain, you know, um, stereotypically sort of male characteristics over female ones? I think there are a lot of broader questions to ask about equality and, and pay in the workplace that just putting it down simply to women's lack of confidence is a bit sort of patronising and naive. Mm. But you do say that there are young women who are still, you know, unsure about asking for pay rises. Mm. Is, is there still some sort of blokey culture there where the blokes do get on the, the soapbox and ask for their money? Look, possibly. I mean, I don't know case-to-case pay mm. rises are one of these things that happen in that little room where you go in with your editor and no one quite knows what people are saying and, and what everyone else around them is paid. Um, that's just something I've observed from a few of the women I speak to. But by the same token, you've got absolute confidence powerhouses in the Herald like Kate McClymont who, you know, she's nobody's putting her in the corner nobody's going to underpay someone like that. Like, I think you've got to be careful about tarring all all women with the same brush and maybe it's more of an age thing than it is a, um, a gender thing in some cases. Right. It's people sort of learning their worth and once they've proven themselves then that gives them the confidence to um, to ask for the upgrades. Uh, Lyndall Curtis, do you find that as well maybe at the ABC that um, it, it's a matter of a, a generational gap maybe? I think that may be something to it. I know uh, as I've got older I've got grumpier and more willing to... <laughs> to uh, stand up for what I think I'm worth, although my bosses don't always agree. I spend a brief period of time as a manager in the ABC and I have to say uh, the blokes in the newsroom were were more likely to come forward and, and ask for things mm. than the women, but that wasn't always the case. They had, had, you know, a couple of strong women who knew what they were worth and were willing to argue their case. I think there's a whole lot of things involved in it, uh, you know, whether there is a confidence thing and, and women just need to learn from their male colleagues or those women who, who don't feel so confident to 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 ask for what they what they believe uh, they are worth but I think there's also a question too of getting more women into more senior positions um, there's been a long uh, what some people have called a feminization of the profession when I was going through journalism school many years ago now there are a lot more women in my class than men I had, don't think we've seen... We, we are beginning to see women get into the senior ranks of the profession in terms of the editorial and leadership roles, but that's been much more much more slowly in coming. Mm. And I think there's also the question, too, that, that a lot of women have a break in their career to, to have children. Now, whether the, the family responsibilities are shared after that, um, that break can sometimes slow you down a little bit and you, you take a little while to getting back to to where you think you should be but i think uh, you know there are there are no grounds for paying women um a different rate of pay to men if they're doing if they're doing kind of work of equal value and mm. and i'd i'd encourage young journalists to to figure out 
what you think you're worth and go and argue your case. The worst, the worst thing that can happen is your boss will say no. Um, and just quickly, Helen, um, do you think there's also something sexist in this assumption that uh, genders assumed to be the the root of this lack of confidence? Should we maybe be looking at age, um, ethnicity, or, or sexuality as well as, as something determinants? Possibly. Um, I feel like we we might be looking at it from the wrong direction in that mm. way. Um, you know, gender, ethnicity, sexuality isn't necessarily the cause to confidence's effect, um, but. If anything that has been, you know, any aspect of yourself that has been used to hold you, that has been used by someone else to hold you back, to hold you back, mm. that is going to affect your confidence. So it's not necessarily that's the first thing that's come along. Um, but you know, I mean, with Joe, I'm you know hesitant to tie this all with a brush because you know, working at the Guardian, I've been working for Kath Viner, who left, made way for Emily Wilson. Lee Glendening is my news director, so you know, I'm hesitant to say that there's this massive, huge problem with women not getting anywhere in media organisations. Oh, and it's um, certainly an issue that will keep rolling on. Look, we're, we're running up to the top of the clock. Thank you uh, to all of our guests for joining us this week. Lyndall Curtis from the ABC, Joe Toby from the SMH, Helen Davidson from The Guardian and Rachel Baxendale from The Australian. Really appreciate your time. And uh, you've been listening to Fourth Estate across the Australian Community Radio Network, produced here in the studios of 2SER. Thanks to our executive producer, Isabel Summerson. I'm James Bourne. I'll catch you next week. Hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate is produced by 2SER's 107.3 and can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER's 107.3, 2SER's Digital, 2SER.com and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.